Just a brief note before we get started, this episode is part of a special series we recorded at the Institute for Energy Law's annual Oil and Gas Conference. Some of the discussion will focus on issues facing the oil and gas industry specifically, but we think all our listeners will learn something of value. We also want to give a special thanks to the Institute for Energy Law for hosting us. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. I'm excited today to have as a guest Jennifer Mosley. Jennifer is Senior Counsel, Major Transactions Law Group with Chevron Upstream. Jennifer, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Great. I also am joined by my partner, Matt Louie, from the uh, London office. Matt, welcome. Thank you very much. And I'm excited to have you join us for the first time on the podcast. Likewise. We had Simon and Tracy, also uh, from our UK uh, folks, join prior episodes. So Matt, uh, pleased to have you join that, that group. Uh, Jennifer, as I mentioned, is with Chevron. And Jennifer, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you end up in your, in your current position? So I guess, um, actually, I have a little bit of an interesting background. I started out as a tax attorney, kind of a dirty little secret, I guess. And um, my (laughs) husband's in the oil and gas industry as well. And so I started out doing tax controversy. Um, You seem too nice to be a tax attorney. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a little surprising, really. I I actually loved it. It was so much fun. I like the um, kind of the gray area of tax and trying to figure out... um, kind of yeah it was just it was a good time and so I worked actually for um, KPMG and Deloitte before I uh, my husband like I said is in the oil and gas industry as well and he was relocated to Aberdeen Scotland and since tax does not translate um, Mm. I ended up that was when I turned into an oil and gas attorney and so I had the opportunity to work for a law firm in Scotland (laughs) called CMS Cameron McKenna and um, while I was there I focused on uh, M&A work and kind of oil and gas work in the UKCS and uh, became UK qualified. And then once we were relocated back to uh, Houston, I continued working for the firm. But then after a while, since I was the only attorney in Houston, actually the only attorney they had in the US, it um, was a bit lonely. So I decided to go with the firm here in Houston. I worked for a firm called Porter Hedges for mm-hmm. a while and did like true domestic US oil and gas, which was fantastic. Um, and then was looking to do more international and so joined Morgan Lewis um, for a bit and then ended up having the opportunity to go to Chevron. So great. I've kind of been all over the yeah, place. Yeah, you really <laughs> do. That's a great experience. And when you say qualified in the UK, is that kind of like being a uh, member of the bar kind yes. of thing to be qualified? Okay. Yes. Yeah. And what's that process like? I haven't talked to too many lawyers that have done it. So the Well, I think the process has become a little bit different since I did it. So when I did it, it was in 2009 and it's called the QLTT, which is the Qualified Lawyers Transfer Test. Okay. And um, it's similar to taking the bar exam and so it was a three-day long exam (laughs) and um, it had three different uh, portions of it there was a I guess a civil law portion uh, a property law section and then um, I think an ethics section and so had to take those three portions and then once you pass that then you were qualified in um, 
in the, the UK, but also you had to have practiced for, I think it was um, three years beforehand under a, a qualified attorney as well. Gotcha. So, mm-hmm. Great. Well, that sounds neat. Matt, I know this is your first time on the podcast. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. I know you're a fairly recent addition to the Wombleban Dickinson team. Yeah, that's right. So I'm a new partner in the London office. So my career, I started actually at CMS Cameron McKenna. It's a <laughs> small, small world, world, isn't it? Yeah, small world. <laughs> Although they have offices in Aberdeen and they're very strong in the UK continental shelf. But I worked in their London office mm-hmm. and I trained there, which is a very UK-centric concept, which you don't have here. And then I was in their M&A team and I've focused a lot on energy, right the spectrum through upstream, oil and gas, renewables, and then also utilities and infrastructure. And then I moved, or coming on to five years ago now, to Baker Botts, obviously a great firm in Houston, but actually I was in their London office um, to focus more on pure upstream oil and gas work and global projects, still with a corporate M&A spin. And I got to come over to Houston quite a few times and work with big upstream M&A services providers who were doing their kind of inbound work into the UK and some EMP providers as well. So it was interesting work. Um, but I've wanted to work for a firm that's more got a bit of more of UK-centric element to it, and, and Wombles has that because we're sort of a, a dual firm in a way, and we've very much got a big footprint in, in London and in the UK. So I moved over, lateraled over just at the beginning of this year. And this is my first trip back to Houston <laughs> as a partner here, so I, I'm enjoying it. Great. Well, we're excited to have you. I do think it sounds like with your background, it's a great mix given our transatlantic uh, focus. And again, just to remind listeners, we've got about 500 lawyers in the U.S., another 500 in the U.K., and kind of combined under those two uh, groups. So that's our that's our focus. I thought maybe we'd start, you know, I know you guys are both in the industry. We may have other listeners that don't follow it as much. What what? Tell us a little, an overview. We were talking briefly before we started about kind of market conditions. I know there's some challenges in Houston and the domestic market, maybe a little different perspective. I'm going to start with you, Matt. What, what's happening in the UK in terms of the broader you know, oil and gas picture? It's interesting listening to the talks going on, on the transactional side here at IEL is there is a slightly negative picture painted. Mm-hmm. Really, there's a lot of players happening. I've just listened to a long talk about, say, debt rollover and problems that players could have to refinance, for example. I mean, look, it's a difficult market and the commodity price is really the same globally. But I think particularly in the UK continental shelf, there is some activity and 2019 was down. But we've seen a lot of private equity money flow into the market, particularly in the mid-market sector. And I think there's going to be increasing amounts of consolidation and increased still deals going on. Some of those funds have still raised money. They're active. Uh, And there's also a certain amount of the larger players spinning off subsidiaries and elements they haven't capex particularly over the last five years or so so it still is activity i wouldn't say it's as buoyant as it was a few years ago it, it's still a bit of a, mm-hmm. a down market but there is there is work happening i think mm-hmm. that probably plays out in the experience you've had as well yeah no i mean i think it's one of those things that i think the majors are always looking to make sure that their portfolios are correct and always looking to make sure that the assets they have there are Every, everything's always competing for capital and so you just need to make sure that what is has working for the capital is there and then if you have items that somebody else can do a little bit better than or will fit better in their portfolio then you can see there might be some opportunities and so yep I think that's kind of so that activity will always be happening and evolving and stuff so gotcha 
you know, an area where I think some uh, particularly newer GCs are get anxious is where you start talking about international transactions. And this may be a little more general than some of the specific oil and gas stuff you do, but it's always that sense of, uh-oh, you know, I'm, I'm used to reviewing contracts with these U.S. suppliers, but all of a sudden I've got an international contract or supply agreements and choice of law problems and figuring out how to do it. As someone that's now been doing that for a while, um, if my company's just, quote, gone global, you know, and I'm, and I'm starting to, I'm now the lawyer in charge of these international transactions, what are, what are some of the things that in-house counsel needs to think about if they're just starting to kind of enter the international transaction area? Well, I definitely think the the first and best thing that you probably can do is find a good, strong local council in the jurisdiction that you're going into. And so um, that being able to have that concentrated experience and knowledge is what's going to be able to help and guide you through. And so um, if you can be able to research and figure out who's going to be kind of the best partner with the experience for what you're looking to have um, – what you need the assistance with, that I think is um, the the partnerships of what you're looking for. And that's kind of what we look to do, especially when we're going into new jurisdictions. Gotcha. Any tips for folks that are looking for that local council? So, so there actually are different publications and things out there. There's like Legal 500. There's, uh, there's several different publications that are out there that rank different um, Firms, firms in different okay. jurisdictions. And so those are actually great starting points. And so um, you can go to a specific jurisdiction, see who, um, who, who are the top players. And those are typically um, effectively voted on by in-house counsel and people mm. that have worked with them. And so and you can read about the different folks and, and really get a good perspective on them. And then um, from there, you can then Typically, what we'll do is then, you know, have calls and kind of effectively interview them and see who we feel the most comfortable with and kind of talk a little bit about issues that we think we might be seeing and hear what they have to say effectively. And gotcha. so, mm-hmm. That sounds good. And Matt, I imagine that you're on the receiving end of some of those calls where they're looking for someone to help with a uh, with an arrangement. What, in your experience, what kind of what are some of those concerns that you see uh you know, in-house counsel presenting when they're coming to you. And obviously yours probably going to, you know, whether it's the energy area or some other other area. No, I'd probably say two things and picking up what's just been said. So the first thing is actually just appreciating how the home or U.S. market works. And so in M&A, for example, there are differences in how the deals will be run. And it's, it's quite important to get someone that's got experience of both so that you can actually bring some perspective to that rather than just saying, oh, this is how we do it in the U.K. or this is how we do it in X jurisdiction. Actually saying, well, look, I know how you guys do it. These are the differences, really. Mm. And sometimes you'll find that the approach gets melded together because mm. it's an international deal. So if you can appreciate that, you'll probably be more useful talking about how to find people i mean we're a member at one was lex monday yes. which is a good international mm. network and there's mm. basically quality control over all the firms and it's not every single jurisdiction globally but everywhere you can really think of a lot of them a lot of jurisdictions yeah. <laughs> there's going to be a firm and you know you can pick up the phone and they'll be good but i mean you can look to legal 500 to mm. chambers and partners <laughs> this is one you were thinking of i think mm. and they will have ranking and you can see you know i want a, a top quality lawyer in the top market or it's mid-market and you can pick out different counsel and mm. so i think that's a very good way of identifying someone but it's all on personal relationship really mm. like you worked at cms so i'm sure you might speak to them or speak yeah. to other trusted advisors as well and mm. you know that they understand how how you operate. So I think that's probably the most important thing, isn't it? Personal relationship. Exactly. And, and if you can find, um, for instance, if, if there's a firm that happens to have a global reach, like 
with y'all. And so I could reach out to Liz and say, hey, is there someone in your London office that you could recommend? And so sometimes if you can leverage those relationships that you have here in um, your local market that you know, and if the firm happens to be global, and you, that, that obviously is, a, is very helpful. So you're not just starting from scratch. But if you are having to go into a jurisdiction where someone doesn't reach, then th- those uh, other publications are good options. So Yeah, and actually there are very few UK firms, as you touched on, that have a presence in Houston. It tends yes. to be the other way around. Mm-hmm. That there will be a Houston firm or a US firm that mm-hmm. has an office in London as well. But traditionally, the UK firms have struggled to kind of break into this market, I guess. Maybe mm-hmm. a bit less so recently because mm-hmm. there are more entrants, but certainly historically, yeah. there were very few with any presence on the ground here. Exactly. Some would have a presence in, say, New York, and but they might have one or two attorneys and that would be it. Oh, wow. And so, okay. yeah, and, it, and now it seems like there are a couple more coming in. And Yeah, but still I mean, it's a minority, it's, I would exactly. say. Really just one that matters, though. Of of course. Uh, uh, (laughs) Um, What about you? You what you said, Matt, struck home with me about the fact that different countries do it differently, and if you've seen them both, you can help. uh, You can help that in-house counsel in the U.S. understand how the U.K. deal may be structured or the elements from the structure Mm -hmm. by understanding both of those. I think that that's important. Can you give examples of some, you know, some ways the UK would be different from the US, the, the kind of coaching you might do with a US client that hasn't seen a UK deal or is trying to do, you know, do one for the first time? Um, yes, I guess I'd speak very generally from a kind of M&A perspective. So you probably find, for example, in the US, the risk of a deal will sit with the seller mm-hmm. for a lot longer. And you'll have what they call a MAC or basically material adverse change clause often in there. And there wouldn't often be one in a UK deal. Mm-hmm. You'll find generally in the UK, once the dotted line is signed, even if there's a whole bunch of conditions, it's the buyer's risk. Mm-hmm. Um, pricing. You'll find often that they're very keenly negotiated completion accounts in the US. And we sometimes use what's called a lockbox in the UK, which is a much more light touch approach. Um, liability. I mean, uh, some <laughs> people in the UK may say that you're more litigious in the US than we are, but your negotiations around limits to liability will be very hotly contested, whereas we'll have all of that. But you often find there are higher caps in the UK, say. Mm. Um, And some of it's just cultural as well, you know, the way the transactions are negotiated, the way the documents look and and they're drafted. So it's a mixture, I would say. That's helpful. That's interesting. Jennifer, anything you want to add to Matt's thing or things maybe you've seen in in your experience? Because you you come from a somewhat unique perspective too, having, you know, worked over there and now being here. Well, yeah, no, everything that that he says is, is spot on because I mean it is uh, in the UK it's certainly buyer beware and then we're in the US it's much more uh, they, they look to protect the buyers and mm. then um, like for instance also representation and warranties in the US representation and warranty that term is used just it goes yes. back and forth. It doesn't matter. Those are two very distinct concepts in the UK. Yes. And so, um, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know that. Liz and I are saying, wait a minute. Yeah. Yes. And so, representation is different than a warranty. Yeah. And so, you could end up uh, effectively uh, nullifying a contract if you. Uh, they're held to different standards effectively and so so yeah so if you have a misrepresentation versus a warranty and so you have to be very careful with without so if you just basically take a u.s contract and you bring it in right. and then um just change the term <laughs> i see you, would be, you listeners can't see him that shaking his head yeah and so that, that that's idea. where some that folks idea. would make mistakes yeah. that don't realize it they might just say oh i have my spa that's a 
Texas rule law. I can just mm -hmm. come over here. No, you can't. Because, <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, someone that's litigated some of those reps and warranty clauses, mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, they're kind of lumped together. I rarely, you know, distinguish. It's, it's a breach of the reps and warranties for me. It's not <laughs> typically, you know, one or the other. That's, that's really interesting. Mm. No, I think that's right. I mean, in the UK, I call them reps to you guys when I'm speaking to US lawyers, but mm. we don't normally give a rep in the UK. Mm. It's, it's considered oh. to be very much buyer-friendly, and you can often actually rescind the contract if there's mm. a breach of them. So, And there are other things as well, like, you know, you guys talk about indemnities, and almost always there's a whole pa liability package with indemnity mm. backing, which is dollar-for-dollar dollar recovery. Mm. But again... That's unusual in the UK, certainly for just the full suite of reps and warranties. It's not normally dollar for dollar. Mm -hmm. So again, that's something that gets lost in translation because the terminology sure. sounds the same, mm -hmm. but it means different things. Yeah. yeah. And then you also have like the disclosure letter, for instance, in the UK, where that's just not a concept that you have in the US, really. It's... So you, you might have your... You have your schedule, don't your, you? Your, yeah. Your, your, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the schedule. <laughs> but I can never say it right, sorry. <laughs> but um, in the disclosure letter, it effectively starts out with one big massive general disclosure against all any kind of warranty that could be provided. And so, I mean, that's... <laughs> that's right. So how do you decide, I mean, it, let, let's say you're a U.S. entity and mm -hmm. you're acquiring a U.K. Mm -hmm. entity. Obviously, it could work the other way around. You know, so you've got a merger, mm -hmm. uh, you, you've got that purchase agreement or whatever mm -hmm. it is, and they're both sides coming with these different terminologies. Is mm -hmm. there some, is that just one of the negotiations? Is Are we going to use a, a U.K. form, a U.S. form, a hybrid form? I mean, that's, I, I, that's, I know that's the world you transactional lawyers live in, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not our world. I wonder, how, how do you decide even the basics of, kind of which what format you're using for the agreement so that's definitely a, a point of negotiation um, so if you have two US uh, companies that are dealing with US assets obviously it's going to end up being some form of US law sure and if it's oil and gas, you probably want to have Texas, or you might see New York, depending on whoever it could be California. Mm -hmm. um, then if it is uh, international, if you have two uh, different folks from different jurisdictions, um, a lot of times you'll see folks using UK law. That yeah. happens a lot. That's mm -hmm. kind of the fallback. Um, but sometimes if you're dealing with an NOC, you'll have to use whatever the and local NOC? Uh, national oil company. Okay. And so gotcha. you'll have to so uh, you'll have to use whatever their local law is a lot of times that they'll kind of have that as an as a requirement mm -hmm. um, but there are some challenges at times with uh, depending on where you're contracting the local law might look so say you're buying an asset in a certain jurisdiction and neither one of the um, seller or buyers located there and you're using UK law because both the parties can agree on that the local jurisdiction might say there's no point of contact effectively there and so we'll look to if there's a dispute apply local law to your agreed contract so you kind of have okay. to look to and local yeah. and those are kind of just issues you kind of have to weave your way through yeah that's right you often end up with a hybrid structure so you're right so particularly if it's two international parties let's say i've for the sake of example, doing a deal in Russia. So, for example, mm. you would often have, say, some joint venture or structure set up offshore somewhere with a friendly bilateral tax mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. regime, maybe the BVI or somewhere, which is very similar construct to English law anyway. You'd have mm -hmm. your contracts done under English law, so they're enforceable mm -hmm. between the parties. But then you'd have to have points of contact onshore in, in Russia or wherever. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have to have that with local parties anyway because it will be subject to local law. So you end up with a mixed match, don't mm -hmm. you? Mm -hmm. but, and it's difficult to make sure that, that any disputes are actually 
arbitrated offshore if you want them to be, or you may find you're in a local court. So you need to be careful, effectively. Yeah, and exactly. I pick Russia because I know that often they will try and ensure that actually it's not possible to have a contract under English law in Russia mm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. And they will oh. say it has to be governed by local law. And so you need to be careful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, those are good practical tips. Yeah. I think I think our new GCs may be even more scared than, <laughs> than they were beforehand with the international contract with those nuances. I think those are good tips. What about the, the an area that's that's near and dear to a litigator's heart is dispute resolution provisions. Mm -hmm. um, is there a move? I know some in some other areas. I've definitely seen a move towards arbitration mm -hmm. as a preferred resolution. Is that is that what you're typically seeing, or are there other options for you know resolving disputes that arise under these agreements? I, I, th I think what we usually end up seeing is kind of a three-tiered approach where we'll try to have like direct negotiations, then mediation, then arbitration. Okay. And so kind of trying to see if we can have things resolved on a face-to-face -face level before having to go through the full arbitration just from a time perspective and mm -hmm. also a cost perspective. And depending on also kind of um, what the issues are, for instance, uh, if certain items you might be able to bring in an expert where you can do an expert determination. And so that can also streamline the process and uh, help with costs as well. I got you. So an expert to like help resolve the dispute, whether if you've got a valuation question or you've got some uh, exactly. question about, you know, specifications or w whether you're getting what you contracted for. For, in, know, for, if, for instance, yeah. if you have like a um, environmental dispute or like mm -hmm. an environmental uh, issue or um, title issue, like when you're dealing with the, the SBA. So then that way you can have the expert expert up front to determine it and you don't have to go through the arbitration process. Okay. Interesting. And how is the expert typically chosen? Is that specified in the contract or is there a selection process specified or how do you usually figure that out? Um, it it kind of depends. Usually, I mean, you can try to pre-agree that at the beginning. Either you'll specify like either parameters the mm -hmm. it has to be an attorney that's had 10 years worth of practice in this certain field right. or you can um if it's an accounting type expert you can say it has to be from this accounting firm and mm -hmm. so but then obviously you try to have somebody that hasn't worked for either one of the buyer or seller right. within a certain period right. of time i just so. know right you're going to be levering to oh this yeah. expert i know this expert exactly We've used him six times and exactly he, always, he knows <laughs> us and likes us so yeah um, but that is i mean that that makes some sense to me particularly knowing that some of these disputes are going to be expert heavy at the end mm -hmm. when they get to Liz and I, you know, we're, we're going to be calling these experts from both sides. If you had one up front, mm -hmm. um, it might be a way to, to be more efficient. That's, yeah. that's interesting. You often have a provision which says something like the parties can propose an expert, but if they can't mutually agree, you have mm -hmm. a backstop provision. In, like in an English contract, you often say if it needs an accountant, mm -hmm. that the Institute of Chartered Accountants mm -hmm. in England and Wales will select someone with a suitable amount of experience, say at least 15 years in that particular industry, mm -hmm. so that there's always a backstop, there'll yeah. be some quality, but you can discuss it, because it depends exactly what the dispute's on. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. What, what other pitfalls should some of our uh, less experienced... Oh, Brian, go well, ahead. I was just curious about due diligence. I would love to hear about your experiences with um, due diligence in uh, your international deals, especially for uh, larger companies. Um, mm -hmm. That can become a very kind of nuanced and very complex process. And so I'm just curious about kind of uh, your experiences with that and, and tips and suggestions and things to look out for um, during that process. 
So I have to say, uh, we've been more on the sell side. For, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm more, gotcha. for, the, <laughs> for the last like six mm. years. So I'm definitely much more on the how to put together a data room <laughs> and, yes. and go, go through that process as of as of late. So mm. I think just kind of where, where we've been. And so um, well, tell us about uh, I mean, that I think is a, a huge thing, too. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? How to put together a data room if you're a seller. In other words, what, how, do you, uh, how do you facilitate that process? And are there, do you use any technology tools? I know there's a number oh, of yeah. products out there now for um, you know, data room stuff that were, weren't available 10 years ago. But well, now, it's actually uh, interesting. We've, we've been working actually currently trying to figure out how it is that we can start using technology to better streamline our process and make things better, faster, and uh, cheaper. cheaper. And then better, also faster, make it so cheaper. that I've we can that like... Somewhere. <laughs> focus our areas on kind of our best and highest use, if you would, you know, okay. and so, um, so yeah, so we've been trying to figure out, um, for instance, everything from like these new redaction type tools that are out there and understanding how we can like utilize those um, to uh, maybe trying to leverage um are they it's the e-discovery type tools oh so, yeah predictive so, coding type yeah stuff. predictive yeah. coding yeah. to be able to help mm -hmm. us with because apparently yeah, i guess I've now that they can to do that right i mean we're, we're very familiar with it in litigation because it's mm -hmm. been used for e-discovery for a while but yeah i understand they're trying to do that more in the deal context now not quite sure i understand how it works but i understand the theory i understand the uh the idea no uh, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's you're, coming in isn't it the, the it's not e-discovery but it's the same thing kind mm -hmm. of basically e-due diligence isn't it and there's yeah. there's kit now and i won't give the names of them but it's basically a really enhanced search function and so it can help you identify what's important really quickly i mean it's from yeah. a buyer's perspective yeah but it can cut down the legal cost it's not going to stop you having to look through mm -hmm. everything and do it properly because it's not quite at that level yet it won't write a report for you but it will really help you identify what's key to cut through some things to identify even just simple things like documents in a foreign language immediately so mm. you know who to instruct yeah 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 see, mm. we've, we've actually just heard about these these types of new technologies where they, they're able to kind of look at a large amount of contracts and yeah. they can kind of help you identify where there's variations and mm. there's changes or if you if there's certain concepts that you have a concern with you can it's not just specifically a keyword but they can actually learn concepts and understand it's it's amazing with the AI and what and what's great is that I guess a lot of them, these technologies, they're kind of, they said they're about five years maybe out to being perfect. So if mm. you can kind of get on the front end of it and work with some of these folks, you can kind of mm. help with the development side of it. You know, Mark here's probably what we're looking for. We've, we've, ex we've had a contract uh, with AI uh, doing some of that. Yeah, we've been doing some internally with some of our practice groups where we've tried to use um, different types of either, you know, form assembly or mm -hmm. other stuff. And I do think there's a lot of promise there. I think yeah. it is hard to, it's, it's what, as you say, it's one of those things where, you know, is it bleeding edge, cutting edge, you know, how, how much? I mean, so I think we, but yes, it's definitely something I think is, is coming and offers a lot of potential. Mm -hmm. Figuring out how to use it, you know, cost effectively mm -hmm. is, is always, is it can be a challenge. Yeah. But, um, but no, I think it's, 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 it's an exciting area. Yeah. We're actually seeing a few of our clients in the UK, and it tends to be larger outfits are requiring you to use it. So they're saying, look, we want you to save money. We want you to use <laughs> some of this technology. Not all of them, but you've got to be used to pricing that into a deal. Otherwise, you might find that you lose out on instructions. Mm -hmm. So it is becoming increasingly important. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and I think the thing, like, because also, so one of the big issues on the front end whenever we're doing the due diligence is personal data and privacy matters. And so each jurisdiction mm -hmm. has different rules and regulations right. and restrictions and penalties, basically, if you 
mess up. And so that's kind of one of those, when you're putting together these massive data rooms is you're having to really look out for those issues. And so if there's technology that can help us find this personal data without having to have an individual, be it some poor soul in a law firm or whoever, <laughs> go through every right. page of go document page and, and look for that, then that's, that's something that would, is, is going to be, I think, a great help. And so, yeah, and that's effectively how starting to utilize like the e-discovery because you, mm -hmm, you can right, do that, yeah. so, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> that makes sense. Good. Um, any, other, any other tips? I do I want to talk a little bit about IEL as well, but before we leave the topic of transactions, any last uh, suggestions for someone that may be, you know, getting used to it on things to look for? We, we've told them about the importance of local council. We've touched on some differences between the, you know, the whole assumptions of deal structure between different, different countries um, and then ways to, to try to make the deal more technology, you know, expedite the transaction from a technology standpoint. I'm always curious about the, the issues that trip up constantly. But like, no matter how experienced you are, you, it, this is the thing that like everybody winds up tripping over, and and your experience with that, and how, what kind of remedies you might uh, have, have found effective. Just to make sure you do your diligence thoroughly, because particularly in a kind of an EMP context, there are areas like, say, data protection, which might not traditionally be ones that you look at quite mm -hmm. so heavily, but mm -hmm. it's critical to do it properly. And there have been examples in the UK where people haven't looked at this properly and their warranty or, or rep package, as you call it, hasn't quite been sufficient. And there have been huge financial consequences to that. So mm -hmm. to make sure you pour over everything, whether or not you're using technology to help you, but to do that properly. And mm -hmm. we talk about an international deal. Again, it goes back to using good local counsel because international will be all around the world, whether mm -hmm. or not your head acquisition contract is English law, to make mm -hmm. sure that the local people on the ground you trust, they've looked mm -hmm. at everything and that you can actually cut through their report and their analysis to work out what is key. It mm -hmm. sounds very general, but it can be a very difficult process, actually, to work with local lawyers. And to, but you're kind of point lawyers at the top, so if that's ours, we can help you do that and yeah. cut through. Yeah. I echo what he says. He, right. Yeah, you did a good job there, Matt. <laughs> I see Jennifer. Yeah, the audience can't see I, you yeah, nodding. Yeah, I'm nodding. But nodding. I see as Matt ticks him off, Jennifer saying, uh-huh. Yep, that looks good. All right. Excellent. Well, I understand until recently you were the YEP chair, the, the Young Energy Professionals Practice Committee. Yes. Um, which is part of IEL. Tell, tell us about what that is. So the, the Young Energy Professionals Committee is um, one of the newer committees in IEL, but also one of the largest and most active. And it's for the members that are under the age of 40. And um, it's basically the, the goal is to provide an, I guess, kind of a area where young professionals can get together and network and uh, have learning opportunities and, um, and not only just meet people their own age, but also then have the ability to get exposure to, for instance, general counsels or different uh, partners and things along those lines. And so it's, um, and, but then also provide, uh, so for instance, Young Energy Professionals uh, annual conference every year yeah. that we have in, I guess, this year it's going to be in Austin <laughs> in April. And so... Oh, it was in March this year, pardon yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's held every spring. And so it's just, it's, it's a great opportunity for, um, for the folks to get together and meet 
for both in-house and outhouse or uh, outhouse. <laughs> That's okay. Precious. We're in the slip there. Yes. Private outside council. No, we, we sometimes feel like we're in the outhouse. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> but, yes, but to, yeah. to get to get because it's great because when you start out like younger, you don't necessarily know. F folks' careers like change and move all along right. as, as they're going along, and so someone who might be in private practice with you when you're in your 20s, 10 years later, they might be like Christy and be the the, head, the GC and head of um, you know right. a major oil and gas company. <laughs> so right. so it's it's great to like not only like make these relationships, but that provides you something that you can have an area to foster those relationships kind of throughout your early career. And for I mean, if if you start early, you could be in it for 10 to 15 years, which is wonderful. Yeah. No, that's great. No, I think those networking opportunities are so valuable, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's, um, as you actually, we touched on it earlier with the importance of that good relationship. Mm -hmm. I think building the relationships and finding people that you like, that you trust, that you know will do a good job mm -hmm. is really important in this industry, whichever side of the outhouse you're on. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so, no, I think that's, I think that's, that's valuable. Oh, Lord. That's, that's, that's good. Yeah, and I, I guess that's also kind of one of the, the big things that they have is the, um, oh, goodness, what is it? The, the Leadership Council. Oh, yeah, the oh. Leadership Council. We just started that program. Okay. Yes, yes. And so, oh, so within IEL, there's a Leadership Council uh, program, or is it part of VF? It's so or, part of VF. Yes. So there's a leadership council where they have leadership opportunities within YEP. Mm -hmm. And then also there's the, what is the group that we have every fall? The leadership class. The leadership class also. And so that is great because there's about between 35 and 40 individuals that then get to participate. And it goes from September and it follows through until the following September. And they really get to, they have several different opportunities where they get to meet each other and work together. They also do a class project. And so they really get to have an opportunity to really develop really good relationships there and then they kind of grow up together if you would <laughs> as far as the folks who might hear this and be interested in joining um the yep what would you say you know tell them to be prepared for as far as kind of come in with your your notes ready or whatever like what is it that what what should they know about kind of coming in prepared so i think if um I think one good thing to do is to, for instance, if you have the opportunity to either go to the Young and Professionals Conference or if not, if there is one of the breakfast series or things along the lines of that, um, go and then find one of the leaders, the chairman or um, the vice chair, and just talk to them and tell them that you're interested in getting involved. And because anyone who raised their hand, we're always looking for someone to help. And if you're excited and you want to be involved, they'll scoop you up. And so I, I think that that's the beauty of the group is that if someone's interested, you, you they'll give you as much runway as, you, as, as you're looking for. And listeners, if you're interested, uh, you should be able to find a link to uh, the organization uh, in our show notes. Great. Sounds good. Well, th thank you so much, Jennifer, as in-house counsel, and Matt as out-house. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. As, uh, as the out-house counsel. We have, we, have both, we have both sides of the, uh, of the door here. Now, this was a great informative talk. I appreciate it. And I hope our listeners that are putting their toes into that uh, international transaction water at least have some more stuff to think about and can find the help they need, uh, whether it's at Womble Bond Dickinson or some other, some other firm. So... 
that that brings us to the end of the show. I, if, if people have thoughts, I guess, and, and wanted to get in touch with you, are you on LinkedIn? Is that the best way if they have if they have follow-up yeah. questions about yeah, the inspirational sure. thoughts? You're both there. Absolutely. Yeah, right. absolutely. Please right. do. Great. That sounds good. Um, I also want to remind our listeners that you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to this podcast at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com, or on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments about this episode, you can share them with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm also always interested in topics for future episodes. Thank you for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womblebond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer, and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.